Hi, everyone. Chris and I have something to share with you. Don't worry, we aren't going away. You can't get rid of us. But we have been thinking about how to offset the costs of hosting the website, creating content for the podcast, and purchasing equipment which would allow us to bring listeners along on some of our joint jaunts in the future. We've discussed different options, and at this point in time, we are determined to keep the podcast ad-free and available to everyone, so we don't want to add a subscriber fee. Those listeners that have been with us from the beginning know that I am a student of philanthropy, recently finishing a degree in philanthropic studies. I'm a big believer in volunteerism and giving back to society. And when it comes to the arts, historically, artists have had patrons who have helped provide funding for their endeavors. Back in the day, authors made nothing from the sale of their books. Their profits derived from the wealthy patron to whom they dedicated their work, which is why, in many early novels, dedications could be overflowing with flattery. Most art today still survives and thrives because of patronage. With that in mind, Chris and I have decided to put our hats out to you, our listeners, and we have created a Patreon page for donations. To reach our page, go to www.patreon.com slash bookcougars. That's www.patreon.com slash bookcougars. There is absolutely no pressure to donate. You can listen to us as you always have, but if you are interested in assisting us to offset some of our costs, we appreciate your help. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 41 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And we had a really exciting joint jaunt that we went on. And the most exciting part about it is that we now get to bring you guys on it. Yes. With us, which rarely, actually never happens <laughs> except maybe in pictures. Yes. This will be the first time it's happening auditorily yes <laughs> and we hope to do this more in the future yeah um, but anyway what we have for you today is an episode featuring Min Jin Lee and the conversation we had with her at RJ Julia in Madison Connecticut a couple weeks ago we've talked about this before but today we're going to be featuring not only the episode that was aired on just the right book episode 64 for them You'll hear the second part of that episode has our conversation with Min Jin Lee. We also have some of the Q&A that they weren't able to include in this episode. So we hope you give it a listen. Yeah, and um, the, the Q&A portion, the sound quality is a little difficult to hear. So what Chris and I are going to do is introduce the questions that were asked by members of the audience so that you can hear understand Min's responses. Her responses are very clear and very easy to hear, but it was difficult to hear the question being asked by the person sitting in the audience because there were no microphones available to audience members. Yeah. But Min is so, um, she's so smart and so kind and fun and funny and all that. We just felt like we wanted to give our listeners the opportunity to hear some of her responses. Yeah. So without further ado... Pachinko is a National Book Award finalist, a New York Times Book Review Top 10 of the Year, and Roxanne Gay's favorite book of 2017. (laughs) (laughs) Juno Diaz, author of The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wao, said, In 1930s Korea, an earnest young woman, abandoned by the lover who has gotten her pregnant, enters into a marriage of convenience that will take her to a new life in Japan. Thus begins Lee's luminous new novel, Pachinko, a powerful meditation on what immigrants sacrifice to achieve a home in the world. Pachinko confirms Lee's place among our finest novelists. Please join me in welcoming Min Jin Lee. 
everybody. Now you're probably wondering, well, who are these two people sitting next to me? <laughs> That's not who we came to see. So um, I'm Emily Fine, and we are the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. It's Our, a podcast. Yeah. Um, we've been going for a little bit more than a year now, and we have an episode every other week. Um, and it's really special for us to be here with Minjin Lee today because the first time anybody ever recognized us publicly, just from hearing our voices, was at an event at the Savoy last March That's right. up in Rhode Island. So mm -hmm. it's great to be here with you today. I also want to thank all of you guys for coming out tonight. Do you know that it's Thursday? <laughs> in January? In January? <laughs> you know, my uh, publisher told me that you know, I was going to have this event here, and I said, are you sure anyone will come? And also, I didn't know anybody, so then I called my sister, and I said, do you know anybody in Connecticut? Because empty chairs are not my friend. So then, and then I thought, oh, I'll get these popular women to come with me, and that'll help a lot. So then uh, my sister's husband's older brother and his wife are here. <laughs> so... <laughs> John and Georgia are here, and I figured, like, if you guys didn't come, we'll just go to Pepe's. Because, <laughs> you know, in Connecticut, you always have that pizza backup. Yeah. I want to thank Gina and Patty for organizing this event. I want to thank uh, Roxanne Cody for having this community space, because independent bookstores are the civilizing aspect of our lives. And we are so grateful for this store. I also want to thank Emily and Chris for hanging out with me today because I don't know if you know this, but I suffer from an incredible stage fright. So it's always nicer to have friends who are with you. So, and thank you for coming out tonight. I'm going to read for three minutes, three minutes, because I want you to like me, <laughs> primarily. <laughs> um, I can't stand it when authors go on and on. So I'm going to read for three minutes a very, very early part of the book, and I'm going to read... Um, we're going to pretend that we're not in Madison, Connecticut, this beautiful town. Pretend that we're in Busan, which is in the southern tip of South Korea right now, what used to be the peninsula of Korea. It's 1933, so this is before North and South were even divided. We're at a ferry terminal, and my main character is saying goodbye to her mother, Yangjin. So we have only two people, really, that you have to be concerned with. It's Yangjin and her daughter, Sanja. It's 1933. We're in Busan at a ferry terminal, so imagine. Mm -hmm. I saw the gold watch in your things, Youngjin said. Was it from that man? Yes. What kind of man can afford a thing like that? And Sanja didn't reply. Where is the man who gave you that watch? He lives in Osaka. But that's where you're going. Are you planning to see him? No. No. You cannot see that man, Sanja. You cannot see him. He abandoned you. He's not good. And Youngjin took her daughter's hand. You cannot see him. That man, and Youngjin pointed to Ishak, who was still talking to the immigration officers, that man saved your life. He saved your child. You're a member of his family now. I have no right to see you again. Do you know what that's like for a mother? Soon you'll be a mother, and I hope that you'll have a son 
who doesn't have to leave you when he gets married. And Sanjan nodded. The watch. What will you do with it? I'll sell it when I get to Osaka. And Youngjin was satisfied with that answer. Sanja, save it for an emergency. If your husband asks where you got it, tell him that I gave it to you. And Youngjin fumbled with a purse tucked beneath her blouse. This belonged to your father and mother. And Youngjin gave her the two gold rings that her mother-in-law had given to her before she died. Try not to sell it unless you have to. You should always have something in case you need money. You're a thrifty girl, but raising a child requires money. There'll be things that you can't expect, like a doctor's visit. And there'll be things like, if it's a boy, you'll need fees for school. And if your husband doesn't give you money for the household, earn something and put aside savings for emergencies. Spend what you need, but just throw even a few coins into a tin and forget that you have them. A woman should always have something put by. And take good care of your husband, or another woman will. And treat your husband's family with reverence. Obey them. And if you make mistakes, they will curse our family. And think of your kind father who always did the best for us. And Youngjin tried to think of something else to say, anything that she was supposed to tell her, and it was so hard to focus. And Sanja slipped the rings into the fabric bag beneath her blouse, where she kept her watch and the money. Amini, I'm sorry. I know. I know. And Youngjin closed her mouth, and she stroked Sanja's hair. You're all I have. And now I have nothing. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you for reading. It's really lovely. So when Chris and I saw you uh, in Rhode Island last March... You talked about being very shy. I think you actually used a term I'd never heard anyone use to describe shyness, which was hysterically shy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd never heard that. And being someone who's shy, I could relate to it. You know? And then we follow you on social media, and you, know, you don't sleep, I'm pretty sure, and you have crisscrossed the globe this last year. And I am, that is serious. I mean, back and forth and back and forth. And the last time we saw you in the fall, it was the day that the National Book Award announcement came out. And I had said to you, I was hoping, you know, soon you'd be able to get some sleep. Right. And certainly that didn't happen. So but I lost. <laughs> <laughs> I got all dressed up, but I lost. <laughs> Plenty more accolades were to come, though, however. So could you just talk a little bit about, you know, what your expectations were when you wrote Pachinko and then what ended up happening last year? Oh, that's a good question, Emily. And it's kind of funny, but I, the reason why I say I'm hysterically shy, and this can be verified by my family, is that when I was growing up, and I, when I came to America in 1976, I was seven and a half, English is my second language, I didn't speak English. So then I had a, a language issue, but then also, I really couldn't talk to people. 
even like in Korean, like I just really couldn't talk. I, I was so, I guess um, I had a, a predisposition to be quiet, but then when I came here, I really just didn't even know how to function. And then I, I really didn't start talking until I was almost in high school. But then I was so off that I didn't even know that I was off. So in a way, I think a disability can be kind of protective. And now that I'm a parent, I look back and go, why wasn't I invited to any birthday parties? But like, I get it now. There was something, like I couldn't handle the communication. I couldn't really handle crowds. But the really wonderful upside of all this is that it really made me retreat into books. And I just sort of just kind of got sucked into the vortex of books. And there were a lot of really kind people in my life who were very, very nice to foreigners because I was a foreigner in Queens. And these librarians and teachers and English language specialists were incredibly kind to me. So I somehow made it through. But in terms of the expectations of this book in particular, is that I had no idea that I'd be on book tour for a year and a half <laughs> around the world. And then I have another six more months to go. And I almost feel like all the publishers are slightly amused by the fact, by sending a hysterically shy person out there. <laughs> They're like, oh, yes, the audience, the readers will feel sorry for her. <laughs> That's it. And I'm like, okay, I'll just go. And then I also feel like the subject matter is so important to me. I've spent almost all of my life on this subject. And I feel like in the service of this subject, I think... I have to overcome all of my issues and talk about that. So when I think about it as a service, then it's easier to talk about everything. It's easier to you know, be on social media and be on Instagram. And I'm 49 years old. I'm a little too old for this stuff. But <laughs> I think that it's supposed to be... Like, I have to try to think of the larger picture. So I think about that all the time. But in terms of expectations, I did not think that this book was going to sell at all. You were not something that I expected <laughs> in a million years. Like when I finished my manuscript, it was really thick, and I had a Kinko's box, and I had to go to Kinko's and I asked for a free box because I printed out in my own computer, and I took the box and I went to my very fancy agent's office, and I was in the elevator, and I told myself, if she doesn't like it and she can't sell it then I'm going to try to reach out to some academic presses and perhaps I'll publish it for nothing, but then at least I'll be done. Like, I'll be done and I can go on with my life because it was killing me, this book. I got the idea when I was 19, and I started it in 1996 to 2003, and it was a terrible draft, so I never even sent it out. Like, I was really just depressed about all the professional choices that I had made. And then um, I started again in 2007, and since 2007, that's all I've been working on. So when I was done, I was like, yes, done. I just really just needed to let it go. Yeah. So, and it's very humbling. And you're, and you're just really grateful that someone really spent 10 to 12 hours with your book. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think people, I think a lot of writers, like, we don't, we don't do it for the money. <laughs> we do it because we love the work. And the fact is that there's so much competing for your attention right now. So many things. So if you're willing to spend 10 to 12 hours with this text, whether you got the book from the library or a bookstore or for whatever, from your friend, I just think it's really quite a thing that the reader gives to the writer. And I feel really quite gratified to be here and just to meet you guys. So thank you so much. Absolutely. I, I love this book. Um, and I guess one of the questions I have ties into the portion you just read mm -hmm. where she's leaving her home. 
you've been leaving your home a lot. Um, but I was really struck by looking at the book again. You start with the epi epigraph mm -hmm. uh, from Charles Dickens right. on the importance of home. The last word of the book is home. And then in, in between, or I shouldn't say in between, but the first line of the book is history has failed us, but no matter. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about home and history because there is so much history in the book. For those of you who haven't read it, it starts like in 1910 when the uh, Japanese annexed Korea, and it goes to the 1980s, 89 or so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit. I, I know that's probably the whole book right there, but the importance of home and history <laughs> and how much history matters, but then it doesn't. Well, I think that all of us are really obsessed with what home is. It's one of the things that every single person in this room is really interested in. And all of us have, maybe you guys were from Madison, Connecticut, and this is where you've stayed. And that there's a really reason why you've stayed here. Or maybe you're from, let's say, Nebraska. And you come to Madison, Connecticut, and you decide you find your own way. Emily's from Ohio. It's interesting to me about the intersection of history and home. Because for some of us, history has determined where our homes will be. Mm -hmm. And the way history and the forces of history have worked, we can't always decide what, where we're supposed to be. And sometimes we land in places where people don't want us. So right now, the UN um, High Commissioner of Refugees has stated there are 65 million refugees around the world that are in the globe that nobody wants. Right? And some of us in this room may have descended from refugees who are unwanted at one point. And I think about that all the time and what that means that... 65 million people don't have a home. And they may not have left because they want to. They may have left probably because there are other forces, other people who are in charge who made terrible decisions on their behalf. And so that goes back to the first line of the book, history has failed us, but no matter. And one of the things that I wanted to sort of embody is a sense of defiance, that all of us in this room are constantly having to make adjustments because there are decisions that are made for us that we don't get to participate in. Like, how many people were sitting at the Treaty of Versailles? Right? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think any of us were there. Or, and how many other tables in Congress and rooms where like, the, the recent tax hall that just passed, like, how many of us participated in that? So even if we elect certain officials, they may not necessarily get what they want. And what are we supposed to do? And the thing that I really learned from all of my interviews is that people are so adaptive. Like, we're so adaptive. So even and all these workarounds with the issues of all the inequities there are in the world, and that gave me a lot of hope. Like, I don't get discouraged when things don't work out my way. I realize, no, actually, the history of what I've seen and all the interviews that I've done, people are so tough. I mean, it doesn't mean that we don't get discouraged, but we're really tough. And that gave me an enormous sense of fortitude about going on and continuing this book. And I wanted to get that message about how people are so resilient, even if you have institutional reasons to be unhappy. You know, um, I read so that I can learn about things I don't know about, and so I can escape, admittedly, from, you know, everyday life. And I have to say, I just want to say thank you publicly, because I learned so much reading this book about something that I knew absolutely nothing about. And obviously there's, you know, you have history here and it's meaningful to you in a different way than it's meaningful to me. But um, I really appreciate learning 
about, oh, you know, the things that I got to learn about through this book. So can you talk about, you just alluded to the research that you did, but can you talk about a little bit of that process and how you came to even write the book? Yeah, well, thank you so much. That's really kind of you. I mean, I'm so glad I asked Emily to join me today. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, I had no idea I'd get all this praise. <laughs> if I keep listening to this, I'm going to become insufferable. <laughs> um, well... I did so much research because I was terrified. I was so terrified of being wrong. And I majored in history in college. And so I trained as a historian. I thought I was going to become a historian. So I was really focused on primary documents and interviews. And I really love ethnographies that anthropologists do. So I had this sort of academic approach to this book. And that's the reason why my first book was terrible, the one that I wrote between 96 and 2003. It was not good enough to be an academic book, and it was not good enough to be a novel. Okay. So I think one of the things that I think about training to be a writer is that I needed to understand the form that I wanted to write, because my wheelhouse is 19th century Western literature. So I wanted to write 19th century Western literature like all the greats that you could think of. And I was like, yeah, I want to write that kind of book, a social realist novel. But I didn't know how to do that, so I had to learn. (laughs) It took me forever because I started writing seriously at the age of 26. So I'm 49 now, so that's what I've been doing. And I've produced two books. (laughs) And I've been working nonstop. It wasn't even like I took a break. That's how pathetic I am. And then I wanted to pick a subject which was worthy of my attention. And I think you had asked me earlier why I quit being a lawyer, right? Right. So I used to be an attorney. I was an attorney for like five minutes. (laughs) So I know just enough law to be dangerous. (laughs) I would not ask me to opine on anything. So I quit because I had a very serious liver disease, which I don't have right now. And when I was uh, at Yale as an undergrad, I went to this doctor and he said that I would get liver cancer in my 20s. And he said that I wouldn't be a candidate for a transplant because I'm, I'm fine now. I'm fine now. But I wouldn't be a candidate for a transplant because if you are a carrier of hepatitis B and you're a chronic carrier, you're not, you're not put on the list as a priority candidate. So he just kind of just said it to me like I was 20. He's like, you're going to get it. But he goes, but liver is a nice organ because it kind of grows back. Maybe you'll be okay. So I've always been having, I always had this sort of idea that I would die like really early. And so I was thinking a lot about mortality. And, if, and when you do think about mortality as a kid, I thought a lot about, well, what should I do with my time? Like, how do I want to spend my time? And I thought if I wrote a book, it has to be something that's important, like all caps. So I think that when I was researching this book, I read every single academic book about the Korean Japanese available in English. And if you look at the back of the book, I credit all the scholars that I think you should be considering if you're interested in the topic. Because they don't get any attention at all. As a matter of fact, they're so excited about this book that there's a symposium at Johns Hopkins in the spring because they're like, finally, <laughs> somebody cares about the Korean Japanese besides us. So I'm going to, it's going to be kind of fun. That's but yeah, it is. Yeah. I know, it's kind of yeah, cool, yeah. right? Um, so I get to like join the academics without getting a PhD, which is not easy. <laughs> but going back to this idea, I wanted to create a book that was entertaining, like the 19th century novels that I really loved reading, which people don't read anymore because that narrator, the omniscient narrator, is annoying. <laughs> like if you don't read Tolstoy or... Um, even even like a Balzac, if you don't read him right now, if you don't read George Eliot, a lot of it's because they have this kind of all-knowingness 
that most people who are modern Americans don't like. And I understand that. I do. And especially kids are like, I'm not going to read that. So I thought, how do I write a 19th century kind of novel and yet have the clarity of American prose? So I wanted to sort of write like Joan Didion and John Updike and Annie Dillard and um, Alice Munro. That's kind of like, she's a Canadian, but we'll let her in. (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to learn how to write, get the right style, the right subject, and then the form. And that just took so long. But I do think that if you don't like a book, you shouldn't read it. <laughs> no, I'm a, I'm a really big believer in that. I have no idea how much longer I'm going to live. I might, be in, like, I might live until I'm 95, but even then, I don't want to read bad books. So if a book is not that interesting after 50 pages, I'm like... I was just going to ask you how many pages you give. <laughs> I, really, I, I am not a DNFer. The books that I don't finish are the ones that stick with me. The book that I read page to page, I can't remember. But okay. those, the ones I don't finish stick with me. But just recently, I think it is a middle-aged thing. I'm like, you know, there are a lot of books. There are a lot of really good yeah, books. There are a lot of yeah, really good yeah. books. So I just like, just go to the good books. And I think that if, if three people tell me to read a book, I usually read it. Mm-hmm. So that's my litmus test. If three random people tell me, you got to read this, I'm going, okay, fine, I'll read it. I hope you like my book. (laughs) Now that I've said it. You will like this book. And I love the way you just said, I don't know if I can repeat it, but the the type of sentence you were trying to build, because I really think that's what I loved about this book. I mean, if you're a skimmer, you won't be able to skim this book because you want to read every single word. It is beautifully written. Thank you. Yeah, I'm not a poetic writer. Like, I really admire people who are very lyrical. I'm not a lyrical writer. I just really wanted to write these very cool American sentences. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to take this sort of Western European tradition, but then to have this sort of American sensibility, because I love American prose and stylists. Mm-hmm. Well, and the, it's a historical fiction, um, and you learn so much, I think, as Emily said. Um, but can you talk a little bit more about... Uh, you, you mentioned Willa Cather, you mentioned Nebraska, so we have to talk a little bit about her. Um, but can you talk a little bit about how she influences your writing? Sure. Or, um, you know, I read a, the interview with you from, I think it was The Atlantic, okay. talking about adopting one of her writing techniques or something that helped her get into writing each day. Yeah, the weirdest thing that I do... <laughs> I know. People always go like, so do you have a ritual that you do before writing? And I'm like, I do, but I don't know if you want to hear it. <laughs> but the person that I blame or credit is Willa Cather, because when I first quit being an attorney, I used to read the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Financial Times before I started working. Wasn't that helpful? <laughs> it really yeah. wasn't that helpful. And I, but I was really well informed. Like, I mean, I just knew everything. Like, I could talk to you about the codex and the, you know, whatever. But then I read somewhere that Willa Cather, an, a writer who I really love, read a chapter of the Bible every day before she started to write. And I was like, that's just weird enough for me to do it. So I started to do it. And I have now read the Bible as a loop almost six times. Wow. And I read it as literature. I read it for a spiritual practice as well. But really, I never read it like that before. So I read it six days a week. um, And I spend an enormous amount of time. I think about the stories. I think about how certain parts of the Bible actually speak to each other. I think about minor characters. Like, I've actually met rabbis. And I was able to say things like, well, you know, the craftsman Bezalel. And he's like, why do you know who Bezalel is? (laughs) 
And I'm like, because I read Leviticus. <laughs> like, a lot. Like, nobody reads Leviticus. But I've read Leviticus at least six times. Wow. And it was really great because you can get it. And I initially, when I started doing it, I just like, I would spend 15 minutes. I was like, you know, going, oh, that's sort of interesting. But now I, I, I really dive deep. I really think about all these things. And I think about it in big themes, little themes, minor characters. And I try to look at the things that I didn't see before. And, of course, all of great Western literature is based on the Bible. So you don't really understand Shakespeare unless you know the Bible very well. So all this literacy about the Bible has helped me incredibly. Yeah. And my favorite book in the Bible, and the favorite verse is in Genesis, when it's the whole Joseph story. So I recently wrote about the in, in the Atlantic. I was interviewed. So if you're interested, you can Google Minjin League Atlantic, and there's a whole thing about Joseph. It's kind of fun. But, yeah. And it's free. <laughs> well, um, Chris got to talk about Cather. For those of you on the podcast, Chris talks about Cather a lot. She's a big Cather fan. I talk about food a lot on the podcast sure. because I love food. Yeah, I do too. And, and Who it, loves me? Yes, <laughs> me yeah. too. Yeah. And I love cookbooks. And so I have to ask you about kimchi. Sure, wow. sure. Yeah. Kimchi plays quite a role in this yeah. book. A very important role. Yeah. And it's very important for the women in the book. Yes. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Well, kimchi, for those of you who aren't acquainted, I'm sure all of you are, is a fermented cabbage. It is a national staple of Korea, both north and south. And if you are a certain age, like you would pretty much pride yourself in the kind of kimchi that you make or that your mother made. Nowadays, modern women pretty much buy it in the department stores or any other stores. Just interestingly, in a New England sense, it's a paleo food. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) it's good for you. It's really good for your gut. It has an incredibly strong smell because it's fermented, like anything that's fermented like sauerkraut or cheese. Um, One of the things that I don't mention in this book, but of course in my research, is that all the first generation of Korean women who went to Japan were incredibly poor. And to sell kimchi is a pretty high-class thing. I know. You would never think so from reading this book. It's probably considered a really low-class thing, but the really, really, the average first-generation Korean woman, what she did was she'd made moonshine. Oh, wow. And she would get repeatedly arrested. Because your husband, if he was trying to work, let's say as a day laborer, there were ordinances in Japan that would not allow the hiring of the man consistently. So even if he wanted to work five or six days a week, the local government wouldn't allow them to have all those days. So he couldn't make a lot of money. So like if you could only work, let's say, three days a week, you can't feed your family. So then the women would have to try to figure out, well, how do I feed my family? This is before birth control, right? So you're going to have a whole bunch of kids. They all want to eat at least a couple of times a day. So what do you do? So the cheapest thing to do was to take a little tiny bit of rice and ferment it and make alcohol. So you have this sort of bathtub gin concept, but then it was illegal, so they would get arrested. And when you got arrested, you had to pay fines, and you had to swear you'd never do it again. Until tomorrow. Right, until tomorrow, (laughs) when the kids have to eat again. Right. And then they would also raise pigs. So in a house that was probably like smaller than this area here, let's say you had five people or six people live, you'd also be um, raising your pigs in that same room. So the Japanese who made the Koreans live in a certain area, this kind of ghetto, the children often smelled terrible. Everybody smelled terrible because you're living with animals. And then you're also making bathtub gin. So the fact that Sanja makes kimchi, that's really, really lucky. Mm. 
because she didn't have that many children yeah. compared to other people. And then the children would often um, be picked on at school, so they weren't doing very well, so you'd have a lot of truancy. And the boys often collected garbage to feed the pigs. So they would either pick scrap metal or garbage, and they would often get in trouble. And then the mothers were always, it would be so difficult because the husbands couldn't work, they were taking care of pigs and children, the kids weren't in school very well, and you had no money, and you had to deal with the police. So in the sense, like, this is almost a middle-class family. Mm-hmm. Well, because they make a business out of their right. Energy, right. You know, so, right. I was so hungry when I ate this, when I read this book, when I ate the book. I was so hungry. The whole time I was reading it, it was just like page after page. Noodles and black bean sauce. Are there a lot of good Korean restaurants here? I don't know. Korean restaurants, not that I'm aware of. So I had this sort of scheme where I'm going to write the Diaspora Trilogy of Koreans. So the first book, Free Food for Millionaires, that I wrote, which came out in 2007, um, was just recently re-released as a 10th anniversary edition, it is about Koreans in America. It's all about the Koreans in America. And this book is about the Koreans in Japan. My third book, called American Hagwon, and for those of you who are not um, familiar with the Hagwon concept, H-A-G-W-O-N, it is a tutoring center. And Koreans have all these tutoring centers for their kids. And kids in South Korea go to school, and after school, they go to a hagwon usually for seven to eight hours a day, six days a week. Wow. So I am writing about the role of education and the primacy of education for Koreans around the world. Because wherever Koreans are, there are hagwons. So if you go to Sydney, you'll see a hagwon. If you go to Boston, if you go, I, I know in Connecticut there are hagwons. I've seen them. So I'm writing about parents, tutors, and students. And it's not just a Korean group, because many non-Koreans now are attending hagwons. So something's happening with this level of middle class and upper middle class anxiety about college admissions, where we're all feeling this crunch about performance. And I am trying to ask the question, how do you live a wise life? Like, what is a relationship of wisdom and education? Mm. So that's the next book. That's a big question. I think with Noah, somebody says to him in this book, you know, there's a difference between studying and learning. Mm. And that when you're learning, it's a joy. Yeah, it's not a burden. And studying is such an accomplishment. Get to a certain point, and then you're done. Well, if you think about this, like, we're all lifelong learners, right? Like, how many people on an average Thursday night decide, I'm going to go to a bookstore? You know, to listen to a boring writer. I mean, like, <laughs> it's because we're lifelong learners. And I think if you have a joy about learning, then you're always trying to seek more information because we need it like we need food and water. Like, if you have an unusual name, most likely online today, I will say, what does that mean? And that's part of my nourishment. So I always tell my publishers, I'm willing to take, you know, a 12-hour round-trip flight for a one-hour event if I learn something. So... I expect you guys to share your lives with me today. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, and now starts the portion of the Q&A. The next question is when Min addresses how the book Pachinko is being received around the world. It's funny you ask. I've sold this book now to over 20 countries. And it's been received incredibly well in countries that you wouldn't think, like South Africa, Mm -hmm. New Zealand. It's a top seller in Ireland. And it, any country that has some his, history with colonialism, has, like they've instantly gotten this book. 
and they they don't see it as a Korean book. They see it as a book about homeland, right? It's kind of what um, Chris was saying earlier about the intersection of history and home. Like, how do we figure that out? So it's been a very safe space for people to explore these questions. But it's coming out in Korea in February, and in Japan it has not been purchased. So, very interesting. Bulgaria has come in. <laughs> Czechoslovakia has come in, um, but not Japan yet. But you know, hope springs eternal, Deborah. <laughs> in the next question, an audience member asked Min about the audio version of Pachinko. I'm not the reader, no. I'm like a really low person on the totem pole. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't get asked these questions, but thank you very much because I've, I had these speaking issues for a long time, so I took all these speaking classes. Are you happy with the reader? I don't know. I can't listen to it. Oh. Like, it's really hard for me to even, like, look at the book after. So I have cataracts in both eyes that are unripe, so I can't operate them on them yet. So that's the reason why I have to type everything out in like 16 point and bold. Mm -hmm. But I don't even know what page numbers I'm reading from. But I can't read from my own book right now because of my. But going back to your question of reading out loud and the audio version, they have not asked me. But I don't think I'd be good at it. But I, I like this three four minute thing. It's kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay, in the back. The next question addresses how the book is being viewed across the world and specifically if people in Japan are reading it. A ton of people in Japan are reading the book, but they're not reading it in Japanese. So that's a self-selected group, right? So if you're so cuz right now until like I think I think the only two languages that are out outside of English right now is Poland and Spain. So they came, they translated really early. They beat Korea by like a long time. Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> and the UK version is the English territory for all over the world outside of US and Canada. So when it's in Ireland, it's, it's the UK version. So I'm hearing from everybody else who's reading it. Um, so when I was in Hong Kong, for example, all the people who are reading it in Hong Kong in English read the UK version. Mm -hmm. And also in Japan, I think they read the UK version too. And it differs that much between the UK and, and the US version? The, the jackets are different. Oh. That's it. Yeah, I, I don't really understand how global copyright law works, but usually you try to sell the book and have it come out at the same time. And this is the last question uh, that was asked, and it's a young lady who asked the question about men's self-education as a writer. Well, it's funny. Recently I was applying for a bunch of teaching jobs, and they made it really clear to me that they didn't want me because I don't have an MFA. Wow. So I was, it was so funny because I haven't been to like a real formal job interview in 20 something years. And then last year my husband lost his job for eight months and he has a job now, but we were really freaked out because we didn't have health insurance. Mm -hmm. Because I had all these health issues, I was like, shit, this is really expensive. Yeah. Like Cobra was like three grand a month for our family. So I was like, ah, what do I do, what do I do? So I tried to apply for all these teaching jobs because people were like, you can teach, you're a National Book Award finalist. <laughs> so I kind of like walked into a room and I did an interview and they said, um, you don't have an MFA. And then I thought to myself, oh no, I did it wrong again. So 
when people ask me this question now, I kind of say, if you want to teach and protect yourself, you might want to get an MFA. Mm -hmm. I didn't because I didn't have the money and I didn't have the ability and I had a kid and I couldn't afford childcare. I had all these issues, so I didn't do it that way. But um, in a way, I, I have to say, the upside of not having an MFA is I did, it took, well, first of all, it took me forever. But I write in a very unusual way compared to my contemporaries. And I've been really rewarded for it. Yes. Because yeah. I write 19th century novels essentially with an American sensibility that's modern. So, and I don't think that you could learn how to do that in an MFA program. I don't think they would have encouraged it because it's such a bizarro thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I was allowed to be bizarro because I was outside. Mm -hmm. However, it does affect you when you want to get a gig and you want to get health insurance. So, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. And also, I wish I had had more friends. Like, I know it sounds so silly to say, but, but it's, it's like an eternal quest of mine. It's like, I wish I had more friends. But I don't have this writing community. Mm. I don't. Mm -hmm. So I work a lot by myself, and I know some writers sort of tangentially, but I don't really know a whole lot of writers, and it's because I don't have an MFA. I hear Roxanne Gay likes you. Right, I've never yeah. met her. <laughs> All right. You know, I'm, I'm sorry we have to close the oh. questions because uh, Min's on a bit of a schedule, and she would like to sign your books. And uh, we'll be doing that right over on the other side of the bookstore. Okay. So if Thank we'll you. let her get situated. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Min. It's been great talking with you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. I just love that response by Min about pros and cons of an MFA or not going for an MFA. Yeah. And also just that, you know, I mean, I think it's interesting when you're in your, she's our age, she's in her late 40s. And, you know, you look back on your career or where you stand in your career and think about the decisions you could have made about school versus no school or why you couldn't go to school because you had children or whatever it was. And this woman in the audience was I mean, I'm terrible at age, but I would say in her late 20s, maybe. Yeah, if, yeah, yeah. she's on the younger side. Yeah. And obviously, struggling with the question, MFA right. or not. And, and it's an issue that's talked about a lot these days. Um, I know Laura has uh, come across a lot of people who are saying, in the playwriting world anyway, like you can tell, plays that have been workshopped in an MFA program mm -hmm. in some cases. It makes me think of a book that came out just a couple years ago by Chad Harbach, MFA versus NYC, the two cultures of American fiction. And that was a collection of essays, kind of like pro and con, again, MFA versus being kind of self-educated or within a community, right. uh, you know, where writers are around. But I, I love the point that Men makes is that had she gone to an MFA program, she wouldn't have written the book she's written. Mm -hmm. Like, she writes weird. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and she says, like, this is like 19th century big book right. written in American prose. And and sometimes when you're in an MFA program, and <clears throat> not all MFA programs are cookie cutters. Some are more geared towards the student's interest and style. But a lot of them are this is what you need to do to get published. Mm -hmm. And or, as she mentions, if you want to be able to teach or do mm -hmm. some other thing, you know, you need to have this MFA, right. you know, what do you say, in your back pocket. Exactly. So, yeah. 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 So anyway, I appreciated that question mm -hmm. and the answer as well. Yeah. And 
And we really want to thank Min for inviting us to be there in conversation with her. It was such an honor and a privilege. Yeah, it was a really fun evening. And we want to thank RJ Julia Booksellers. We want to thank Just the Right Book Podcast. Yes, uh, that's Christina Torres and uh, Pat Keog. He was the sound technician who did the recording, and Christina is the, the manager. And they're with Collisions, a division of CRN International. Yeah, so thanks, everybody. Happy reading. Happy reading. Thanks so much for listening to The Book Cougars with Emily Fine and Chris Wallach. If you have questions or comments, please feel free to email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter under Book Cougars. Please consider leaving us a review on whatever app you use to listen to us. It can help other listeners find us. Thank you. What?